were asked to teach today on something that goes hand in hand with raising children, and that is marriage. We told the 200 or so people that were at the conference, after leading your son or daughter to Jesus Christ, the greatest gift you can ever give them is the gift of a good marriage because the two go hand in hand. So we're going to talk about marriage today at the invitation of your leaders, and we're excited about it, and I, you're doubly blessed because you get her, okay? <laughs> Me teaching on marriage, eh, but when you get Diane thrown in, you're going to like this one, okay? We're going to tell you some hilarious stories, and we're going to teach the Bible together. So grab your Bible. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to start today in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to pray, and then we're going to get to work. Father, thank you for everyone who is here, those who are married, uh, those who hope to be married one day, and even for the middle schoolers and high schoolers who are here, Lord. And may this message be used by you to give encouragement and to bring life and joy and hope to every one of us today as we look into the scriptures in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the scriptures together and... We're not just going to talk about the theology of marriage, which is fascinating in and of itself. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But we want to talk to you today about how the biblical truths about marriage in the scriptures actually play out in everyday life, down where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Simply put, what does it take to have a marriage that's not only healthy and holy, but also happy? Because let's face it, there are a lot of unhappy marriages in the world aren't there? And some of you grew up and your parents' marriage, you said, I don't, I don't want my marriage to look like that. Some of your parents even didn't stay together. Um, and if you're here this morning and you're married and you're going through some rough patches, you don't need to stay there. And we're praying that today will bring hope and help to you. Everybody wants to live happily ever after, right? right. You could say, yes, Phil, yeah. yes. Come on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's kind of early, you know. I mean, have you ever met anybody who said, you know, my goal is to live unhappily ever after? <laughs> no, everybody wants to live happily ever after. Some of you are happily married today. Thank the Lord for it. Others of you hope to be married someday. And by the way, that's a, that's a holy and godly thing to hope for in God's timing. Some of you, however, are married and you're having a heart. You kind of wish you weren't married right now, <laughs> I feel for you. Anyway. All of us who are married have discovered that the Apostle Paul, who we believe was single, knew what he was talking about when he was arguing in 1 Corinthians. He was arguing for the advantage as a follower of Jesus of being single. You remember what he said? He said, hey, if you're a single man or a single woman, you can have undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's just you and Jesus. But as soon as you get married, you need to... <laughs> you're laughing already. <laughs> Yes, I want to please Jesus, but I have this other thing called a spouse. And so he's arguing for, hey, the surpassing value. But then he says something really hilarious. He said, but if you've married, I'm quoting the Bible now, you haven't sinned, but you will have, but you will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. You might not, but I do. Some of you even got into an argument on the way to church. Isn't that the worst? Uh -huh. You're like arguing. You're going to go, hi, I'm fine. Thank you. Nice to see you. But as we get going, and before my lovely wife shares a little bit with you, um, I just do want to ask just for us, how many of you in this crowd are married? Raise your hand. Tons of you. Okay. Wow. How many of you, and don't be shy about this, you're not married. Maybe you're even in high school, but you, you, you plan or hope to be married one day. Raise your hand. You're saying you're not married now? Okay. That's great. Okay. Great. I'm especially glad you're here because 
the best time to learn about marriage is before you get married. Would you married people agree? <laughs> you can do it right out of the gate. And the best time to learn about raising godly kids is before you have them or as early as possible. And that's why so much of the Bible is teaching us God's ways. Uh, and so um, if these principles we're going to talk about today, we're going to give you three of them. Even if you're a high schooler or a middle schooler or you're, you're in a home with your mom and dad, these three things that make for a good marriage, they make for good relationships, period. So there's something here for everybody today. So don't say, oh, it's a sermon on marriage. I'm not married. I think I'll check out my iPhone. No, hang in there. Write these three things down. And we're going to talk about what it takes to have a love that lasts a lifetime. Now, babe, why don't you say hi? Okay, hi. <laughs> when Phil and I were first asked to teach together or speak together about marriage, my very first instant thought was, oh, no, not that. <laughs> and my second thought was, not with him. <laughs> because he knows the truth, and so do I, that sometimes lots of times, way too often, we struggle and fail at doing marriage gracefully. For one thing, I'm an introvert, a raging introvert, which means I like to be alone a lot. And I'm married to an extrovert, which means he wants us to be together a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the bigger truth. We have been married for over 39 years. I had to ask Phil in the car, how long have we been married? It's supposed to be the dude that forgets that, right? How? It's me. I'm just telling you. We sat out in the car. She goes, have we been married 38 years? I go, 39, babe. 39. Thank you. Points for me. All right. Anyway, I've been married. We've been married for 39 years. Yeah, you can't be married to yourself. All right. (laughs) To Jesus, yes. Go, Go ahead. And we're happy. I mean, genuinely, we love each other. And are more in love with each other, honestly, than the day that we said we would be together for the rest of our lives, committed our lives to to each other. Because now we know the real people that we are, and we see the beauty of how God has worked to meld us into one when we're such distinctly different people. Even though we love each other, even though I'm this introvert who wants to be alone, And he is this extrovert who can't get enough time together. And even though neither of us is perfect or particularly easy to get along with, and our love has withstood some storms, some hard times. Four children, for one thing. (laughs) Four children who wanted and needed and disobeyed and demanded just like your kids do. Never enough money for another. You don't choose vocational ministry to get rich. I've rarely had a paycheck. And we started a church together, which people say is akin to starting a business together. And the pressure that certainly brought out at times the worst in each other, sometimes the worst in each other at the same time. We've known heartache. We've known hard things. We've had hard things happen in our lives, disappointments, um, difficulties, me losing my hearing when I was a young woman, a son who came down with Type 1 diabetes and ter- terrified us. Real life, hard pressures that make being married sometimes awkward and inconvenient and rough on each other, right? But here we are, still in love. No longer infatuated, no longer insecure or unsure. 
After 39 years of real life, we still love each other. And we are well on our way towards what we pledged on that day, July 15th, 1978. <laughs> Somewhere in there. That we, would, that we pledge our lives together to each other for the rest of our lives, for our entire lives. We are well on our way to growing old together till death do us part. And so today we want to share with you three things that we actually decided these are three things we wanted to make sure our own kids really understood because we wanted to see them get to the point of being married 38 years and in love with each other. So the three things are the three things that we have for our kids. These are three things that when we look back have made all the difference for us and have created between us a love that lasts a lifetime. Amen. It's 39 years. Anyway, uh, so. Did I say 38 again? Yeah, that's okay, babe. <laughs> You're still beautiful, 38 or 39. Oh, gosh. All right. Yeah, so we actually have nine things, but we're not going to keep you. We're going to give you three of them today, all right? So if you're taking notes, write these things down. And like we like to say, if you're not taking notes, write them down anyway. All right. If you want a love that lasts a lifetime or if you're single and you want to have good relationships, number one, practice love and respect. Practice love and respect. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see God's clear instruction to husbands and wives. Uh, it's the go-to passage for any husband or wife who calls himself a Jesus follower. Uh, now, we don't have time to do a thorough exposition of this text. It's, it's just loaded with theology and beauty and all kinds of things. But I want to read uh, a bulk of it to you, and then we want to make a few comments. So this is Ephesians 5. If you've got your Bible open or you've got the text up on your iPhone or whatever, beginning in verse 21, the Apostle Paul is writing these words. Remember, the Word of God is God-breathed, so God is speaking here. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Here's how. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Skip down to verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. And then finally, if you skip down to the last verse, verse 33, it's kind of a summary statement. It's kind of God's final word to married couples, well, to all of us, really, on marriage. And my friend, our friend, Emerson Egrich, who has the best marriage conference around, I think, called Love and Respect, he said it's like your dad is dying in the hospital and the kids make it in time and you know he's going to slip away in just a few minutes and he calls you close to the bed to say his last words. And you lean over because you know these are the last words I'm going to hear from my dad or from my mom, and they're going to be important. It's kind of like God calls us close. And then he says this in verse 33, Each of you must love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Amen. There you have it, two words, love and respect. God commands husbands to love their wives. Now, he doesn't command wives to love their husbands. They are naturally more loyal. They naturally 
do that more regularly. They're commanded to respect. But here he commands the husbands to love their wives. Now, the word love there is the word I'm sure you've heard about through the preaching here, the Greek word agape, agapeo. And here's my definition of, of agape love. This is the way God loves us. And if you're taking notes, write this down. It's love that is unconditional and sacrificial. And then add this little baby. Expecting nothing in return. Wow. Unconditional, sacrificial, expecting nothing in return. This is how God loves us. God doesn't love you. I love you if you, you do these ten things. If you don't, forget it. Get out of my presence. No. He loves us unconditionally, sacrificially, not expecting anything in return. That's why we worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God loves us this way. And husbands are commanded to love their wives in the same way. In other words, I'm to put her needs first, putting her needs before my own, literally laying down my life for her. Now, there's a couple that are part of our church in Westside. They're, they're on a three-year assignment. Uh, he is in China. He works for Nike. And uh, they're Indonesian, but they sent him to China to manage some project for three years. And so um, his wife, Adeline... The, his name is Ito. His wife is Adeline. And um, uh, she wasn't excited about this because she loves her home in Beaverton. She loves her dogs. She loved our church. So suddenly her husband comes home and says, we're, we're leaving for three years. They kept their house and everything. So she had to process this. And Ito, just before he went, he's sitting down with his boss at Nike. And his boss said, how's your wife doing with this? And he said, well, honestly, not very good. She's, she's been doing some crying and doesn't want to have to leave. And, and, and then the boss said this, listen, when you get over to China, whatever is your wife's concern, make it your number one concern. I thought, wow. I thought the guy would say, when you get over there, your wife will get over it, make some money for Nike, and we'll give you a bonus. That's not what his boss said. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if his boss is a follower of Jesus. But he said, when you get over there, whatever your wife's concern is, make it your number one concern. I think this guy's really smart because if he gets over there and his marriage starts falling apart and his wife's miserable, he's not going to be a very effective worker. So maybe that was his motive. I don't know. All I know is that's an Ephesians 5 thing. Whatever is your wife's concern, make it your number one concern. Now, guys, we're to do this and to lay down our lives for what? How can I do that? 24-7, there's only one way that I've learned. Here it is. It's really simple. Through the power of Jesus Christ who lives within me. You see, anybody can love when things are going exactly how you want them to go. My life is awesome. But the only person who loves consistently this way is God himself. But once you give your life to Jesus, he comes to live inside of you in the person of his spirit. And he gives you all the power to carry out the commands he gives you to do. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Wow. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and grace. He's given us everything we need for life. That means everything I need to love Diane in this way has been given to me. I just have to choose if I'm going to walk in the flesh or I'm going to let God's spirit fill me and, and, and love Diane literally through me. A pastor that has impacted my life in a lot of ways in Southern Oregon named John Corson says it really simply. He has this way of putting things that you remember. Without him, I can't. Without me, he won't. Say that with me. Without, Without him, him, I can't. Without, without me, me, 
he won't. What's that mean? That means without his divine power, I can't love her this way. But if I choose not to love her, God's not going to just do it anyway. I have to obey him in this command and love my wife in this way. And, and God is always saying to us, come closer, come closer, come closer. I'm going to give you everything you need to carry out what I've asked you to do. Now, one more thing before my wife talks about the other aspect of this. You husbands and you husbands-to-be someday, God doesn't just command us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He tells us exactly how to do it. Uh, in verses 28 and 29, which we read a little, a little while ago, God tells the husband he's to love his own wife as he loves himself because nobody hated his own body but feeds and cares for it. And I like the New American Standard better, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The application here is as a husband, I'm to nourish and cherish my wife. The nourish part, that means providing for her. It's my responsibility before God to make sure she has clothes to wear, food to eat, a place to sleep. I'm to care for her practically, emotionally, in every way. But I'm also, most guys are okay. We're pretty okay with that. It's the cherishing part <laughs> we're not always that good at. The word cherish there, it means tender affection. It was used of a mother hen gathering her chicks underneath, protecting them. Those of you who are married, your wife doesn't want you to be like some robot engineer with a pen in his pocket. I told you I loved you once. If I change my mind, I'll inform you. you know? <laughs> That's not going to do it, will it, babe? No. No. You, you, you can never tell your wife too many times how beautiful she is, how much you love her, how you're amazed that she puts up with you, what a great mom she is. You can never give her too many gifts. You can never give her too much money. Ladies, can I get an amen? <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's our job to pour love upon our wives. Now, my wife told me I could say this, but as your wife gets older, guys, it's going to cost you a little money because it's going to be a little more work for her to stay beautiful. Now, don't. She said that. She actually wrote. She writes. She has a blog. She wrote in her blog, quote, Beauty in the mirror costs bucks in the wallet. It's okay, true. So, it's too true. So just a word to you husbands. Don't be cheap. I don't know why makeup costs so much. I don't know why a little tiny woman's shoe that has almost no leather on it. I don't know. Just love her in this way. And you'll be blessed. The returns will be amazing. You can tell a wife who's both nourished and cherished because she will glow. Once upon a time, though, in all this glowing time, <laughs> Phil and I got in an argument. Now, I know that might shock you. I mean, pastors and their wives, they don't fight, do they? What with all that training and talking and generally being superheroes in the spiritual world, how could they possibly lower themselves to ugliness? Well, we do, and we did. But the possibility of my coming out a victor in a scuffle with a professional communicator has a probability factor of practically nil, right? <laughs> so I was so frustrated with this inability that I didn't, couldn't grasp to wrestle Phil into agreement with me because that's what I wanted for him to agree with me. So I decided to write it down, to make a list of all the things that I was so frustrated about. If I couldn't out-talk him, I try to outlist him. <laughs> but first, being the godly, holy woman that I am, I decided I'd better read my Bible first. It was a Monday morning, and I thought, okay, I better read my Bible before I make my list. Okay, got my priorities right. But it was on this Monday morning, somehow I'd left my Bible, 
at church the night before. And so I, I was rummaging around in Phil's bookshelves to see if there was a spare Bible that I could use. And I found one, a different Bible, an amplified Bible. Aha, just what I needed to amplify my <laughs> message of frustration to my man. Retrieving this Bible, I sat on the sofa, ready to load up on all those I'm right and you're wrong verses that I could really get him where he'd listen. And just as I did, a big chunk of pages fell out, literally spilling God's word into my lap. And this is the actual Bible. And this is the chunk that fell in my lap on that Monday morning. Open to Ephesians chapter 5, <laughs> verse 33. <laughs> Yes. In the Amplified. <laughs> and it reads, However, let each man of you without exception love his wife as being in a sense his very own self. There it is. I thought this is, this is God. He's speaking. I liked it. Kept reading. And let the wife see that she respects and reverences her husband, that she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates, and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. Oh, oh. I put down my pen. I tore up my piece of paper, and I got on my knees and cried out to God, which is exactly what he was waiting for me to do all along. Instead of making a list so that I could fix Phil, so that we would have the marriage that I wanted. He was waiting for me to cry out to him and say, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes to be a woman of godliness, to be a woman who's content. He was waiting for me to come to him for wisdom that he promises in James 1.5. In order that for us, wisdom is, the good definition of wisdom is doing life skillfully. But I needed wisdom in order for us to skillfully make our way through the, the next many decades of our lives so that we would have a marriage that honored God and was happiness for me. And this is what God taught me that morning, a lesson that would begin to change not Phil, but me and the way I dealt with the differences between us. My husband, I discovered, first of all, my husband didn't need a list of what he was doing wrong in order to love me the way I wanted and felt I needed to be loved. What he needed was a list of what he was doing right in order him, for him to feel respected in the way that he needed to be respected. And I have watched this over the years of leading and teaching and counseling and loving women, of being a woman. I've become convinced that this is the one beautiful mystical thread of sameness that runs in, through every woman's veins, regardless of what her personality and priorities are. We respect and therefore we love. We respect and out of that we love. A woman's love for a man is all tangled up with her respect for a man. It's almost as if God is trying to tell us something in these verses, right? Mm -hmm. Because the truth is when I purpose to notice the things about Phil, that make me prefer him, when I regard him through a filter of honor, that's when my chest fills with those feelings of being in love with my husband. And men, pay attention to this. Your wife's love for you 
is intangibly tied to her respect for you. Can't separate the two. Sure, she can practice respect on purpose. She can be respectful. But this truth ought to make a difference in the way you men do your everyday lives. If you are living as a man that she can respect, not perfect, but as a man she genuinely admires, she watches your integrity. She watches that sometimes your integrity costs you. She sees you look away from lust. You hold your temper in check when your teenage son is pushing every button. And she sees that, and her heart swells with love and respect for you. If you will live with this in your mind, men, your wife's tremendous need to respect you in order to love you, you will be well on your way to creating between the two of you a love that lasts a lifetime. Well said. All I want to say is thank God for the Amplified Bible. <laughs> yes. You guys, Amazon.com. Okay. So if you want a love that lasts a lifetime, you want to be in love, you know, years from now, practice love and respect. And I love the word practice because we're going to blow it. We all blow it. What do you do when you blow it? You ask God's forgiveness, and then you ask the person's forgiveness that you heard. If you're married, your husband, your wife, say, please forgive me, Lord. Please forgive me, sweetheart, for saying those cutting words or whatever. You apologize, and immediately there's fellowship. And, and if you're the one that did the hurt, you need to be the one to work on restoring. Those of you who aren't married, love and respect. You can practice it right in your own home, respecting your dad, loving your mom, brother, sister, with your friends. This thing works in all relationships. Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you want a love that lasts a lifetime, secondly, accept each other's differences. Practice love and respect. Number two, accept each other's differences. Romans chapter 15 verse 7 says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now that's talking about the church. We're all different, but we're to accept each other just as Christ has accepted all of us. We aren't to judge one another like, what's he doing here? He shouldn't be in church. I'm worthy. I'm God's glad I'm here. That guy shouldn't be. No, we shouldn't be judging each other. We should be accepting each other just as Christ has accepted us. But when it comes to marriage, if you want a love that lasts forever, for a lifetime, you're going to need to do more than just accept your spouse. You're going to, their differences, you're going to need to appreciate them. Accepting them is one thing, putting up with them or whatever, but appreciating them, that's going to help you have a fun and happy marriage. It's going to include embracing the fact that God made your spouse unique. Diane's not a carbon copy of me. <laughs> Viva la difference, all right? I'm really glad she's not. You know, a while back, our staff at Westside took, uh, you know, there's all these different personality tests, you know, the Myers-Briggs thing, the, the new one's this Enneagram thing, but one of them called Strength Finder. Some of you have taken the Strength Finders test. In the video introducing the test, they say there's only one person exactly like you in thir every 33 million, okay? So you'd have, to, you'd have to go through 33 million people to find somebody who's one who's supposedly a carbon copy of you, although I don't even think they would be then because every one of us is unique and fearfully and wonderfully made. But think with me. Let's see. If I could date 33 million people and find the person who's exactly like me, we'd never have any conflict. We'd say, that's exactly what I want for dinner. That's exactly what I thought you should wear. <laughs> We'd have no conflict and life would be absolutely boring, all right? But alas, opposites attract and then opposites attack. 
Listen, if you're a, a husband here, your wife is not like you, but she is a valuable treasure. Listen to these verses in Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And then Proverbs 31, 10, an excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. Your wife is a gift from God. She's worth more than a million dollars. But listen, she's not exactly like you. She's different than you. And as her husband, you need to appreciate how God has made her and how he's gifted her. She's better at some things than you are. And we guys need to recognize it and admit it. She's gifted in areas that we aren't. Our wives complete us. They fill up a ton of holes where we're hugely lacking. Okay? Because as men, once we follow Jesus, we're supposed to be holy H-O-L-Y, but we're also full of holes, H-O-L-E, right? Our, our wife, that's why it's what Adam needed help. We need help, and God brings our wife to us to fill these holes and to complete us. Now, this can be hard at times. When we were raising our kids and they were little, I was a young pastor. Diane loved being a mom and a pastor's wife and raising our kids. Our, our first goal among everything was that our kids would grow up and follow Jesus. We said they're going to do way more than we might ever be able to do for the kingdom. So whatever else we do, great, but this is our number one thing. We're going to do everything we can, pray like crazy, seek wisdom. We want our kids to walk with Jesus. And she loved that role. But fast forward years later when we were entering the empty nest and the kids were gone, I'm, you know, as a husband, I'm thinking, yeah, just the two of us. It's all going to be about me now. <laughs> and when, when she turned, you want to tell them how old you were? I was about 50. When she turned started. 50, I didn't know yeah. if you wanted me to say that. Go ahead. So I know she does. Anyway, when she turned 50, she goes, there's two things I believe God's inviting me to do. And she's a writer. And so she said, I think he wants me to write my story for my kids of how I started losing my hearing and I got angry at God and how he rescued me when I didn't deserve it and how he changed my life and now I'm completely deaf and what I was mad about and the worst thing about me is now the best thing about me. And, and if I lost this intimacy with God, I, if, if I, to get my hearing back, I lost it, I don't want my hearing back. She said, I want to write that story for my kids, which ended up getting published. And then she said, secondly, I want to write for our kids how we raised them and why it was our passion that they would grow up to love Jesus. And so I just want to write it for our kids, which has ended up getting published in a book. So you know what this meant for me? Like it's four o'clock in the afternoon. She has this little writer's cabin in our backyard and she's out there writing. And I'm like, I wonder what's for dinner. There's nothing cooking right now. <laughs> and, um, and I'm feeling neglected, right? So I'm having to process this like, well, I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm going to make something. That's not good. All right. <laughs> which restaurant will we go to, you know? And, and it was... I didn't handle it well. I was kind of, you know, a little bit ticked at her. You know, what's that, what's that saying, babe, that we heard when we were first married? Women are a bottomless pit of need, and men are an endless stream of want. <laughs> more, more. But Ephesians 5 tells me that I'm to present her before the Lord, holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle. In other words, I'm to wash her in the water of the word, do everything I can as her as her husband, to present her to Jesus everything he wanted her to be. Now, we're not going to be exactly like him until we see him. And therefore, because she's a gifted writer, her gifts became my responsibility. So I'm learning not just to tolerate her gifts and differences, but actually appreciate them. If you want to have a good marriage, don't just accept one another. Learn to appreciate each other's differences.
And can you imagine how loved that makes me feel to have a husband who feels that it's his responsibility to actually steward my gifts and make sure that I'm in a place of thriving so that I can write out of that place in my heart. It's amazing. It's amazing how that has made me feel so loved. Men, tuck that one away. What are your wife's gifts and aspirations and, and what, how God might want to use her someday in the kingdom? But everything about Phil and I are opposite extremes. Like I introduced, said right at the beginning, I move slow, always slow and deliberate. I need vast amounts of times alone to think and to ponder. To, I love to read. I could study out in my cabin all day long, just going off in rabbit trails, studying this and that. I'm kind of quiet, serious, and steady. And Phil moves fast everywhere all the time. Phil needs plenty of time to be spontaneous, to play, and to have fun. It's essential for his well-being for him to have fun. Phil loves a crowd. He lives life loud, always. <laughs> and we were raised in entirely different oh, yeah. kinds of homes. My family, like I told the, the parents who came to listen to our conference last week, my family growing up valued cleanliness, neatness, order. Everything was just so. Our best times as a family were those times when we were working together on some sort of a project. My family's motto could have been, the family that works together stays together. But Phil's motto, the family that plays together yeah. stays together. My family, when Labor Day would come around, we would always be working together. It's Labor Day. I always thought that Labor Day was supposed to be for working together until <laughs> I married Phil. <laughs> right? It's a day off he for those who labor. It's Labor Day holiday. No, it's to celebrate what, labor. One of our first fights was over what don't you understand about the word holiday? Anyway, keep going. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is not completely resolved. We were trying to clean the garage, no. remember? I was cleaning the garage and putting a bunch of stuff in garbage cans, you know, old bike chains and old this and old that. And Phil was standing around the same garbage can saying, oh, I might use that someday. <laughs> How do you remember that? Anyway, keep, keep going. And so, as you can imagine, we've had a steep learning curve in order to satisfy both of us. Phil learning why a clean garage is so important to me and me grasping his immense need to have fun. I don't need to have fun. It's <laughs> such a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> what I do need is time to think and a perfectly clean garage to pull my perfectly clean car into. <laughs> we are learning that in order to have a love that lasts a lifetime, we need to create a place where each of us can thrive. And we take on that task for the other. That's really important. I promote Phil's need for fun. I even try to be fun occasionally, <laughs> or at least to lighten up a little bit. And Phil protects my need to be alone enough to fill up and refill, and at least tries to be gracious and understanding about my need for order, right? Yeah, well, your need for order. Yeah, you got to understand. She's off the charts. Like, we were, we were late. 
We were late to the airport for one of our conferences in L.A. Our son was picking us up, Matthew. He knew we were late. He pulls in the driveway. I'm running out with the suitcases. The front door's open. Matthew goes, you guys are late, aren't you? I go, yeah. Why is mom vacuuming? <laughs> I go, do you need to ask? She was vacuuming herself out of the house so it would be perfect. And if you know what that rush feels like when everything is just perfect, come on. Where are you? I told you, this is they the fun are, group right here. I guess. <laughs> they are my people, not yours. <laughs> Keep going. But Phil, now we're going to be honest. What? Why were you, we in a rush that morning? We were in a rush that morning because Phil may, had, to, had to stop at Pete's in order to get a fun cup of coffee to have a fun drive to the airport. Of that course, day, right? of course. We couldn't just... Yeah. Move on. <laughs> Move on. But here is what we have learned. Women marry men hoping they can change them. Yeah. You know, just a little. A little tweak here and there, neaten them up, quiet them down, get them to see the world my way. And men marry women hoping they will never, ever change. <laughs> that they'll stay that sweet, compliant, skinny woman that they married. <laughs> right, Phil? I'm not going to touch that <laughs> with a 10-foot pole. All right, number three. <laughs> if you want a love that lasts a lifetime, practice love and respect, appreciate each other's differences. And number three, and we'll wrap things up. Stay best friends, all right? Stay best friends. In Genesis, after God made Adam, after he made the beautiful world that you and I get to enjoy, the moon and the stars, the coffee bean, <laughs> etc., he said, it is what? good. But then he declared there was one thing that was not good. He said, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up uh, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from his rib that he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. So to state the obvious, when God said, it's not good that Adam should be alone. He didn't create three buddies to go have a beer and watch the Blazers beat the Nets, which they didn't do. But anyway, um, no, he gave him Eve, his Eve. And this is a beautiful thing. And then Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that phrase in Hebrew, one flesh, it means glued together in such a way that if it's separated, it destroys what God has joined together. So my wife completes me. Those of you who are married, your wife completes you. She's your partner in life. She's to be your one and only lover, but she's also to be your best friend. When our, our youngest son got married, the last one, Matthew, he was three years ago now, he, he's he got this exotic trip to Bali with airline miles that were given to him. And he Instagrams on his honeymoon in Bali, I married my best friend. Well, you know, of course, everybody's going to say that on their honeymoon. Or you shouldn't be getting married. And I think it was a beautiful thing that he said that. But the challenge is to stay best friends, isn't it, for years to come. Well, we we've, we've did this teaching before another time. And this point said, be best friends. And I, we've changed be best friends to stay best friends because that's the challenge. 
How do you do that? Well, there's, that's another sermon for another time, but you need to keep short accounts and ask each other forgiveness. Song of Solomon talks about the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. Sometimes it's not just a big calamity, an explosion in the marriage that destroys it, but those little sh short things you say, little jabs at each other that ruin the romance of your love. Watch out for those. But in the Song of Solomon, we read this phrase, and it's God's book on romantic marital love. This my lover, this my friend. This my lover, this my friend. So my wife is not just to be my lover, she's to be my friend, and I'm to be her friend as well. It's interesting, in the book of Titus, Paul is telling Titus what to tell the women of the church. And he says, encourage the older women, tell the older women to encourage the younger women to, quote, love their husbands and love their children. That's in the Bible, all right? Paul says, Titus, tell the older women to encourage the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Now, the word love there you'd think would be agape. Tell, tell the old, have the older women tell the younger women to sacrificially and unconditionally love their children, and love their husbands. But it's not. It's a different Greek word, phileo, which is friendship love, where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So God commands wives to be friendly towards their husbands. So Paul said, Titus, tell the older women to phileo their husbands, not fillet their husbands, okay? <laughs> to be friendly towards them. And I want to be that kind of a friend to my husband. Most wives I know are really good at loving their husbands. We serve. It's almost instinctive. We take care of them, all that laundry, cooking, keeping their lives running smoothly so that they can succeed at the life that they have, that they've been put to by God. But being friendly, too often we start to act like the CEO of the corporation, right? We're barking orders and evaluating our employees, or when the kids are gone, our employee. <laughs> that might work really well for getting things done, but it doesn't work so well for creating a love that lasts a lifetime. We were with some friends of ours who, Emerson and Sarah Egeriches, and they, like Phil said, we just think they teach the best. If you ever can go to one of their conferences, go. We actually have sent our kids out of town to go to the conference because we believe in it so much. But we were having lunch with them, and he made a statement that just about blew my socks off. He said, men marry their wives because, and I, you know, you're sitting there and you're quietly filling in and ending people's sentences. I thought I knew exactly what he was going to say because... She's beautiful. He thinks she's beautiful or because he's madly in love with her and he can't live without her. But this is what he said. Men marry their wives because he thinks she likes him. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. back up. Are you serious? Men marry women first and foremost because he thinks she likes him? That's crazy. But there was Phil across the table nodding his head a little bit too enthusiastically for my liking. <laughs> and I need to stop and tell you men something right here. That is not why your wife married you. She did not marry you because she liked you. I'm so sorry to tell you that. She married you because she was madly in love with you and you were madly in love with her and your life together was going to be wonderful, romantic, perfect. You are going to always have this great love, right? Isn't that it, girls? Oh, yeah. Girls. <laughs> Isn't that why you married your husband? Yes, it is. And because you pursued her 
and we women just love to be pursued. My mama used to say to me, don't chase boys die. Run just fast enough to get caught. <laughs> Girls being friendly to and about and towards our husbands is crucial, more vital than any of us can ever quite understand or grasp if we are going to keep their love for a lifetime. He wants you to be beautiful, even if that beauty costs more and takes more time the older you get. He's pleased that you take care of him. He's impressed that you're smart and that you're good at what you do. But what trumps all that is this one thing, that you are friendly towards him, that you act like and talk like and look like you really like him, that he's interesting and he's not annoying. He's not somebody just to quiet down and clean up after. He's somebody you actually are friends with. That's what your husband needs from you. So easy to forget this, but if you and I want to have a love that lasts a lifetime, we have got to remember Proverbs 31, verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the law of kindness is on her tongue. And guys, your wife wants you to be friendly towards her too. I mean, nobody wants to cuddle a porcupine, right? <laughs> so you say, why is my wife not being affectionate with me? Well, maybe you just like stabbed her with a critical comment. So... She wants you to be friendly towards her as well. When it comes to love and respect, both need love and both need respect. It's not that that's the only need. Guys, your wife wants you to be her friend as well as her lover. And this is going to require paying attention to her, um, taking walks with her, listening to her. And if you're at all like me, turning off your iPhone <laughs> or putting it in another room, all right? Uh, you know, this is a real issue with me, and I'm still working on it. On, on it, we have a day off on Friday usually, and I'm starting to, to turn my phone off. We keep hers on in case the kids can all get hold of us, and I, I turn it off, and, and it's okay. I'm in therapy, but anyway, it's, <laughs> I'm working on it. She needs to know that she can get my attention. It's like, yeah, babe, yeah, right, hang on a second. Yeah, oh, yeah, that cool. Hey, Brandon, yeah, I'll be there at 10. You know, no, she needs my undivided attention because she wants me to be friendly towards her. This week, somebody gave us a week at their beach house. So we're going to go over to the beach and because we want to stay best friends. And those times you get, especially if somebody gives you a free beach house, take advantage of them. Be, because we don't want to say on our honeymoon, I married my best friend. We want to still be best friends. And so it takes an investment and it takes a time. So if you want to be happy while married, all right? If you want to know how to handle the issues, the trouble that Paul talks about that comes up, if you want a love that lasts a lifetime, say these three things with me and we will stand for prayer. Practice love and respect. Practice love and respect. Appreciate each other's differences. Appreciate each other's differences. Stay best friends. Stay best friends. And those things apply to all relationships, not just marriage, but those of you who are married, with the Lord's help, put them into practice this week. You'll be glad you did. We guarantee it, right, babe? Mm -hmm. Let's stand for prayer. Just put your uh, Bible and your coffee cup down. And would you just close your eyes? And as Brandon and the gang come up, uh, we want to pray for you. If you're with your husband or wife, just grab, grab their hand. Put your arms around each other. Father, thank you for the marriages that are represented here in this church where you are working so beautifully and so powerfully. 
Lord, you desire these marriages to reflect to the world the relationship between the church, your bride, and Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. As wives honor their husbands, they reflect the church honoring you. And as husbands lay down their lives for their wives, they reflect you, Jesus, the Savior of the world who gave yourself up for us, that we might be washed in your blood and all of our sins might be forgiven. There's a lot going on here, Lord, more even than the physical marriage. You want to speak to the world through every married couple who is here. So may these marriages reflect Jesus Christ on their streets, in the workplaces, in the coffee shops, in the hair salons, everywhere they go. And Father, I pray that the marriages at 26 West would become stronger and stronger and stronger so that this church will have families that become stronger and stronger and stronger so that this church will be stronger and be a more effective outreach into Hillsborough and Banks and Aloha and beyond, well beyond. So Father, thank you that you never ask us to do anything that you don't give us the power to carry out. So now we worship you and we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the reality of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory living inside of us in whose name we pray.